Hey guys, welcome to episode number 16 of the Science Centric Podcast. Apologies for the delay in new episodes. I've been dealing with some health issues, which has had an impact on my ability to create new content. Hopefully these issues are resolved and we can get back to our regular scheduled programming. In this episode, we're talking with Brian Earp, a cross-disciplinary academic whose work touches on philosophy, ethics, cognitive science, psychology, and the history of science and medicine. In an official capacity, Brian is the Associate Director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy at Yale University, and he's also a research fellow in the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. His new book, Love Drugs, co-authored with Oxford professor Julian Savalescu, explores the ethical issues around drugs that can permanently modify how we feel about other people, specifically the emotion we call love. Now, this isn't a theoretical possibility. Drugs like MDMA, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and oxytocin are already on the market and being used to modify our experience of love. In our wide-ranging interview, we spoke about the difference between philosophy and science, the problems with studying other cultures through a Western paradigm, how men and women might experience love differently, and specific scenarios where manipulating our emotions with drugs raises serious ethical questions. But before we dive in, head over to sciencecentric.com support to help keep this independent podcast going. We accept direct donations via Patreon and also get a little kickback on any purchases made through our website with no added cost to you. You can also share your support by sharing this episode with a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or following us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all at Science Centric. All right, enough of that. Let's get into the interview. So, Brian, f- formally welcoming you to the Science Centric podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on your podcast. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, as we were just discussing beforehand, I've followed you on Twitter for many years and and sort of admired your work and admired your um, work in academia and outside of academia, uh, kind of you know exposing concepts and ideas to to the larger public but how would you categorize what you do um (laughs) how how do you define yourself and your and your career that's a good question my formal research qualifications are split about evenly between philosophy psychology and bioethics or practical ethics and i got into each of those things through different routes and i've tried in some ways to combine them where i can so some work in psychology I do, for example, is focused on moral psychology, and that can dovetail into some of the stuff I do in philosophy, which is more around ethics and, and moral, philosophy, uh, moral philosophy. Um, sometimes they're just totally non-overlapping, and I happen to get into a very specific subject that I, I find interesting that captures my attention. So I try to be conversant across different fields. I have collaborators that work in sociology and anthropology and epidemiology, depending on the topic. And I try to learn enough about each thing or way of thinking so that I can be sure that I understand what's going on in the conversation and contribute something meaningfully to it. But in some respects, I I have uh, obviously very diverse interests and they don't always uh, come together in a neat way. So, I mean, that's, that seems sort of counter to how academia tends to work. I mean, you have usually have these very niche subjects and then you really have to dive into this niche. I mean, maybe that's more true in like hard sciences 
uh, than talking about philosophy and ethics and th- things like that. But but how how did you manage to how do you manage to jump around to these different areas? I, I think there's a way of being niche that's organized differently to to what you're describing. So you might have a topic or, or something you're interested in that's that's somewhat niche, but that you but then you want to be able to examine it from as many angles as possible. So I do have some areas where I'm an expert in something very specific, but uh-huh. I just look at it through as many different disciplinary lenses as possible. Uh-huh. So I, I, I whereas some people they'll get very comfortable with a particular way of seeing the world, a particular set of methods, a particular way of running studies or whatever it is. And then they might look at a bunch of different topics where their nicheness is based on their training in a particular field. Whereas I like to, you know, I have uh, quite a lot of training in these different fields, but I'm, I'm constantly looking to try to get new lenses and new tools and new ways of looking at a problem so that I can integrate or, or um, can triangulate between these different ways of seeing a problem. Uh-huh. And then I might get into one particular topic in, in considerable detail and, and hash away at that for years. So I think that's the way that I kind of combine nicheness with, with breadth of interest. Cool. So, so what are those, can you like articulate what those perspectives are that you, that you move between? Is it like science and philosophy and or is there, are there other perspectives that you take when you're looking at a particular issue? One thing that uh, comes up a bunch for me is that I have to figure out when I'm thinking as a scientist and when I'm thinking as an ethicist. So uh-huh. the, the main difference that you might want to draw between those fields is that science is at least trying to be descriptive and explanatory. It's trying to say what's out there in the world. And ethics is, is at least in some way of thinking about it, interested in what should be mm-hmm. out there in the world. Mm-hmm. And those aren't always the same thing. Um, it gets more complicated than that because one thing I study in the history and philosophy of science is the way in which values can often be baked into scientific projects and paradigms in a way that isn't always obvious. So you often have this kind of scientistic attitude where somebody's presenting a view that they'll, they'll describe as scientific and very often they have all sorts of cultural assumptions or uh, personal biases or whatever it is that's, that's hanging in the background, but it's invisible to them because they think that they're acting solely as a scientist. And so uh, when I'm trying to conduct scientific research, it's very it's very important for me to try to rule out certain kinds of biases that I'm aware of, but I don't know if there's an entirely value-free way of doing science. I mean, which studies get funded versus don't get funded is already going to be based on some kind of political or, or, or value-based question. And so at some level or another, science is going to be shaped by values. It's not a clean distinction, but that's one, one thing I have to try to keep in my head relatively straight. Right, right. But I mean, like, uh, you know, even thinking of ethics, I mean, that's based on some sort of coherent internal logic, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, I don't, to be honest, don't know a lot about ethics in a, in a formal sense, but I mean, it has to be, there has to be some consistency there, right? As well. I mean, so, so there is some overlap in terms of science, like in terms of. So in a lot of ethics, people have all sorts of contradictions that are uh, within their moral systems and they, they don't always come to the surface. And so some ways that people think about moral change is that it's a matter of bringing those inconsistencies into people's consciousness and forcing them to make a choice and say, oh, well, if I really hold this moral principle, but I also think this thing is okay, those things don't seem to add up. So maybe I need to either change my moral principle or I need to change my beliefs about whatever it is, whether it's okay to eat meat or something like that. And so the, the thing that I... Th- think is consistent between certain ways of doing scientific investigation and certain ways of thinking through things systematically from an ethical perspective is that you have certain commitments that are relatively central to your view. So within science, there are certain received bodies of information and uh, 
forces or laws that are pretty well described and so forth. And those, those make certain predictions, which is that I should be able to observe such and so in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you have a good measurement and you don't observe that, you should be willing to go back and tinker with some of your theoretical commitments. And I think something similar happens with ethics where you say, I think that everybody should be treated equally, or I really think that, uh, this kind of moral principle is a, is a solid way of evaluating a set of cases. And then if you apply it to the world and you realize that it leads to something that feels like a morally absurd conclusion, <laughs> well, gee, that would mean that it would be okay to torture babies or something like that. <laughs> then you have a choice. You either have to, to follow through with that view and say, well, I guess in a weird circumstance, it is okay to torture babies. And yeah. so, for example, people who are committed to a certain version of utilitarianism will sometimes say something like that. They'll say, well, if you had to torture a baby to stop a bomb going off, it would kill <laughs> thousands of people. And then they'll accept something that feels morally uncomfortable yeah um and so they're willing to sacrifice the immediate intuition but other times the intuition will be strong enough that you say gosh something might be wrong with my moral principle and then you have to go back and see whether you should revise something there so i think people who want to live a morally coherent life do have to do something like this where they're testing their moral principles against their intuitions about particular cases and Uh trying in some way to find some kind of stable arrangement where they can hold to their principles and to their intuitions about particular cases yeah but there is, I mean, there is definitely like a feeling component to that where you, you sort of try on different uh, scenarios and you go like, well, that just doesn't feel, something about that feels wrong, right? I mean, that's very, that's very much yeah. the way that moral philosophers proceed. Yeah. They'll say, they'll say, imagine this case and then they'll go through the case and very often they'll appeal to their own intuitions. They often imagine that these are generalizable to, to everyone, which is why this interesting new area called experimental philosophy has emerged where they try to say, well, listen, you and your ivory tower and how you personally feel about that case may not, in fact, be how ordinary people think about that case mm-hmm. or people in other cultures feel about that case. But nevertheless, the way that a lot of moral philosophy proceeds is the, the philosopher will say, imagine a case. This principle that I'm defending has this entailment when you're thinking about this case. But clearly, that's, that's a, a horrible conclusion from a moral perspective. And what they mean is that feels really wrong to me. Yeah. And so part of what moral psychology is about, which is interesting, is trying to give a scientific explanation of why it is that certain things feel morally wrong to people. And now you can start to go into different things about, well, what's the nature of our moral psychology? Why do we have moral intuitions at all? Yeah. Uh, should we trust certain of them and, and abandon others of them? And if so, on what principles? So, so again, the, the moral philosophy and moral psychology worlds, although they, they seem at a, a superficial sense very different, one is descriptive and one is normative, really these things are folding into each other and, and have all sorts of very interesting questions to ask each other that isn't so dichotomized. Yeah. And, I, and I think what you're getting at when you're talking about science um, is this idea, of, I, I think, scientism, right? Where it's like there, that science is just this objective endeavor that, that just sort of unfolds on its own without humans you know, bringing their own biases, their own uh, judgment, moral judgments to things. Um, I mean, you can obviously see that with, you know, there was sort of uh, scientific racism where there's, you know, people were coming up in the, uh, let's say, you know, late 1800s, uh, early 1900s with with scientific justification for for racism. Right. I mean, that's um, but that that was yeah, the, it, that was the paradigm that racism was OK. And once it wasn't, then it was like, OK, well obviously this this was just shoring up what we already believed that's a stark example where we can look back with the the benefit of hindsight and say it sure seems that the rank cultural prejudices that were dominant at the time had more to do with the the seeming science than some dispassionate evaluation of the facts yeah Uh, 
But what's interesting is that, of course, we all have our current rank cultural prejudices. <laughs> and the, the point about prejudices is that when they're dominant, they don't feel like prejudices. They just right. feel like neutral truth. Right. And so, you know, who knows what's going to happen uh, 100 years from now when people look back at our uh, our scientific communities and say, how did they come to the conclusion that such and so is true? Or why did they possibly entertain that model? Because their cultural and moral presuppositions may be very different to ours. Don't, don't you think, though, that that like science has gotten better at at sort of uncovering biases in terms of, you know, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't, if, if there were those different, if, if we looked back, we, we might say, well, these are, um, these are much finer distinctions. It's not so, it's not so blatant in terms of these preconceived cultural uh, paradigms. That's potentially true in some areas. I don't know. I mean, I, maybe yeah. I'm biased because the areas that I study are the ones that are very controversial from a kind of cultural perspective. And so yeah. the areas of science I'm most interested in are the ones where they're around polarized issues, political issues, moral issues, issues touching on people's yeah. identities and so forth. And so I'm not so certain that those areas of science today are somehow more immune from the the foibles and biases of, of the past. Um, yeah. You know, when it's 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 much harder to publish a paper that's that's premised on some sort of blatantly racist uh, view today than it would have been in the past. Although yeah. uh, some people would argue that those kinds of papers still are being published, um, but with you know finer grained distinctions. Um, but in some areas that I work in, the cultural bias is is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk about your book, um, Love Drugs. Two yeah. two two topics that everybody is interested in well not everybody but (laughs) love and drugs probably probably feel strongly about both of those topics uh let's let's say that everybody uh has an opinion on those um so um i it's 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 a very interesting read um i feel like this book is about more than what the title actually says it's about i mean there's a lot of information in here about um, what I would, what I would call the biopsychosocial model at not me per se, but, but has been called the biopsychosocial mo- model. Um, and it's about the tension between the bio, the psycho and the social. Um, yeah. would you agree with that characterization? Um, and I guess the other question is why did you choose to frame it around, um, this this concept of of love drugs that's really a really interesting and a good and an insightful question i i was just re-reading uh the book the other day because i got the uk version came in the mail so uh-huh. i kind of opened it up and was leafing leafing through it and that was a thought that occurred to me i said you know i guess if i were to simplify what a lot of the different things that this book is about um uh, are it would be that it's trying to characterize phenomena like love or like identity or even I get into things like sexual orientation and sexual orientation related identities and so forth. So it's really about love and sex and identity. It's about a lot of different things. Human nature um, is that we we can't see any of these things just from one perspective, which goes back to how we started this conversation. If yeah. you want to understand something like love, it's not enough to only see it through the lens of literature where you think of it as something that exists in a disembodied soul. That's very beautiful. And poetry and literature and art and all the different ways that we talk about love and pop music and movies and so forth, that's all to the good. But that's not the only thing that there is in love. Love is also an embodied biological, visceral, 
aspect of our experience that's rooted in stuff that's going on in our brains. And if we don't pay attention to that part, we're liable to be misled or to potentially um, uh, harm our relationships because we're not alert to the ways in which our biology is relevant to uh, the, the strength of our relationships with others. So, so an example that we talk about in the book is we take all sorts of drugs for medicine on a regular basis. And mm -hmm. I talk a lot about, uh, we talk a lot about selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, which are used for antidepressant medication usually. And the thing is that we call it antidepressant medication just because that's what we happen to use these chemicals for. But the chemicals are just chemicals. And so they're doing whatever they're doing as soon as we ingest them. And one thing that they're doing is they're interacting with the neurochemical underpinnings of our romantic relationships. But if nobody's studying that in a systematic way, if nobody is including questionnaires in their antidepressant trials to ask, how is this drug affecting your relationship? Then all you're going to get is theoretical reasons for making this prediction, as well as random case studies and anecdotes. So partly what we call for is an awareness of the fact that what we experience psychologically and subjectively is this wonderful, magical, mysterious thing when we're in love with someone. One, that's partly going to be shaped by sociocultural considerations, and we have to uh -huh. pay attention to the way in which what we count as love is partly variable, depending on the culture that we're in. And it's also shaped by biological considerations. And although it might seem less romantic to think about brain chemicals in the context of love, we are taking drugs that affect those brain chemicals and therefore affect our experiences of love only in ways that are not currently well understood. And so partly it's just a call for a shift in focus and a recognition that something like love is a multidimensional phenomenon, not something that is just along one dimension. Right. Um, so I think you addressed though, kind of what is, I was going to ask you like, what is love? You know, I mean, it, it's, it's so, um, you know, there's, a, you can describe it biologically, you can describe it psychologically, you can describe it in a social cultural context. But I think back to what I was saying is that the, um, I think what this book is about is the tension between all of those things and, yeah. and the drug component um you know is is how we could maybe bring those things into alignment um but i was going to ask you and you didn't really talk about this in the in the book but i feel like um and i don't know if this is mediated by you know sociocultural uh underpinnings but it feels like men and women have very different ideas about love like what love should be. Um, men seem to be able to separate, you know, sex and love, um, whereas women have a more all-encompassing uh, vision of love. Um, do you think that that's true? I mean, do you think that there's this division between how men and women conceive of love? And from my perspective, um, I think those, if there are different conceptions, it has to do with maximizing our, you know, evolutionary fitness, um, you know, getting back to men having a lot of cheaply produced gametes that, you know, they want to get into the world and women having a, a, a supply of, of a limited supply of eggs and wanting to maximize, uh, the fitness, uh, and resources of their mates to, um, to ensure the the survival of offspring. So do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I have lots of thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> so this is one of those areas where uh, the fact that evolutionary biology and, and a lot of evolutionary psychology for the longest time was predominantly conducted by men, 
is something that should at least cause us to be careful about how we evaluate that literature because yeah. if men are conducting science talking about what men and women are like, uh, they might have certain assumptions that they build into their research questions. Um, there is a theory that goes back to Robert Trivers called parental investment theory, and this is meant to apply to all sorts of mm -hmm. animal species, including humans. And the idea is just that in any sexually reproducing species, uh, you may have a case, and you often do have a case, where you have an asymmetry in the minimum effort that one member of the sex partnership has to invest to have a viable offspring. And so in humans, it's the idea that males who carry sperm have to essentially just contribute the sperm and then they can walk away and go do something else and it's it's least possible that the child will survive and so the way to maximize their reproductive fitness the theory goes is to just impregnate as many people as you can with as little investment as possible and then that that will be a winning strategy uh -huh. you'll get your genes on into the next generation and then the thought is any kind of suite of behavioral dispositions that promotes the passing on of genes to the next generation should be selected for by uh, right. evolutionary uh, processes through natural selection and the thought is that uh Females of our species have a different kind of a thing going on, which is that if they become pregnant, then they have a minimum of nine months of totally taking over their body and then some period of time in the ancestral environment of breastfeeding and weaning and so forth. And so if they want to have a viable offspring, they don't have a, they don't have a choice. They must commit much more than the male of the species must commit in order to pass their genes on to the next generation. And the thought is that this fundamental biological asymmetry should lead to concomitant behavioral dispositions that should differ between males and females of right, the species. Right. Okay. So that makes sense as far as it goes. There are also uh, addendums or addenda to the to this theory, which, which talk about uh, the reproductive advantages that would come to females of our species who have what's called extra pair copulations. And so you see this actually uh -huh. in other animal species too. Um, so the thought goes, uh, Really, the best strategy for a female of our species, assuming that our only goals and values were to pass our genes on to the next generation, would be to have a relatively low status male who isn't going to be getting a lot of mating opportunities, but who will be around and help care for and protect the child and provide food for the child and so forth. While at the same time, that child should be genetically uh, the result of a very fit male who is getting all sorts of sexual opportunities. And so what is in this female's best interest would be to sneak away in the bush and have sex with a high status male and then convince this low status male that actually that that's uh, right. uh, his child yes. and then get the parental care from that male while getting the genetic uh, benefit of having mated with this right. this other male. So what that would predict is that there's there's good, as it were, biological reasons for females to uh, also have more sexual partners than just the, the person with whom they may be forming a long term pair bond. So that's the biological story. Um, all of, so insofar as that's true, if there are these underlying biological differences on average between males and females of our species, yeah. uh, which that may be true, there's, there's a lot of work for culture to do to either reinforce or amplify these supposed or alleged or claimed differences or to uh, redirect them or suppress them or build up cultural institutions that naturalize yeah. them and, and, and turn them into things that are uh, thought of as good because they're seen as natural or whatever. And the problem is that there's just no way to filter out the cultural lens. So when we're conducting mm -hmm. our science, when we're trying to figure out what's true of our species, we are a cultural species. So the thing is that yeah. we're precisely a species that whose partly its survival uh, mechanism and adaptation is to have culture, institutions, moral norms, and other sorts of things, which are in, in some ways the sorts of things that 
take us away from these seeming biological imperatives. Right. And so it's because it's not possible to filter that out very well when we're yeah. doing our science, look at the biological dimensions of our species. It's really hard to know how strong these supposed uh, differences are and whether maybe it's a little bit of a difference that then gets amplified by culture and then uh-huh. is claimed to be natural and is therefore reified. And then, right. you know, and, yeah. and the other thing too, when you say, you know, men and women are generally speaking different in terms of how they see the relationship between sex and, and relationships generally. Um, it may be that there's some little difference biologically, but what happens is once that's the cultural narrative, if you grow up and you, you identify as a, a, a female or a woman in the culture, you're obviously aware of certain scripts and expectations and norms and yeah. stereotypes that pertain to people like you. And your own desires then are going to be shaped by what you think is normal or natural or expected in your society. And so it might well be that as a consequence of these cultural norms, it is true that many women and many men or women and men on average have different attitudes about the relationship between sex and uh, relationships. Mm-hmm. But, but you can't turn the dial to figure out how much of that is biology and how much of that is culture. Yeah, I, I, I think that that makes sense. I mean, um, there's uh, I mean, you can think of a lot of things like that where there's maybe small differences between men and women and then um and maybe to to appear appear more attractive to a mate you might amplify those differences so then you're then you're saying like wow that that uh male's very masculine that that female's very you know feminine so like makeup would be an example of that where women exaggerate their you know, the size of their eyes and their, the color of their cheeks and their lips and everything to kind of amplify those differences that are already there. Um, That's certainly true, at least in some cultures. I don't know how uh, universal that is as a phenomenon, but yeah. my understanding is that as a pretty broad uh, characterization of, of different cultural groups, there are some attempt or another among those who are in a kind of male gender role and those in a female gender role to amplify whatever biological differences or presumed biological differences exist as part of this kind of mating uh, game that gets played. That seems to be a fairly common phenomenon across societies. And, and I think one of the ways that that issue is addressed, like not knowing if it's, if it's um, cultural or it's biological is looking at cross-cultural studies. And then you can kind of weed out what sorts of things aren't, um, you know, that are cultural or that are, are sort of innate. Um, so I think if you looked at, say, you know, how many, and sorry, I don't have a study like uh, on the top of my mind, but if you looked at, say, the average number of sexual partners that, you know, m- men had versus women, you know, would you find that on average that those differed significantly across cultures, then you could say, well, maybe there's something behind that that's not, being that's not culturally and being reinforced that it's actually um you know something that's innate or instinctual that would be one sort of evidence that could weigh a little bit in favor of one of those views over the other but even that evidence is hard to interpret because uh at least in the last uh, 100 years or so the the dominance of western culture over other Mm. uh societies is is so strong that it's hard to you have to go into yeah. these rare special cases where you get the untouched uh, hunter-gatherer group, <laughs> and then you can sort of do studies among them. But then you don't know how representative that right. hunter-gatherer group is and their cultural practices compared to some others. So um, 
there's been this concern in the recent literature that, at least in psychology, there's too much emphasis on studying what are called weird populations, which are those who are uh, white or Western educated people from industrialized rich <laughs> democracies yeah. is what that stands for. Yeah. And uh, so the thought was we should be studying we should be studying other cultures. Otherwise, if we're making these generalized claims, we're really just projecting out from, you know, the undergraduate uh, research participants that we're getting from, you know, American universities is, is some large proportion of psychology studies. And, and that's true. But then Paul Rosen, uh, a famous psychologist, wrote a response to that where, where he said, uh, for better or worse, weird culture is the future of global culture because mm -hmm. of the power and the reach of Western media and uh, geopolitical forces and so forth. So by studying these weird people, we are maybe studying the future of much of human culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So, um, you know, bringing it back to this idea of the, the biopsychosocial model um, of sort of hu humans and human phenomena, um, you know, your book, um, Love Drugs, is about when there's this tension between those things, when those things don't match up. And when it's appropriate to to modify one of those those aspects to to make things match, essentially. Mm -hmm. So if you um, and you bring up the example of like if you're in a, an abusive relationship, if somebody's in a, an abusive relationship um, and they they really, you know, um, it's it's obviously bad for them. They're getting, you know, beat up or something like that, that that maybe they could take a drug that would eliminate that feeling of love that they have for that person so they can escape the bad relationship. Um, could you just talk a little bit about that and what, and what, um, when yeah, that would yeah. be appropriate and when it would not be appropriate? Yeah, we, we have this case that we discussed over the course of two chapters because it's an extremely difficult and sensitive issue. So insofar as somebody's being abused in a relationship, that has a very heavy social cause, which is uh, that societies uh, tend to be permissive of male violence, usually toward women, at least that's the case that we, we look at in our book. Um, there is uh, inter, um, uh, intimate partner violence that happens from women to men as well. It's um, less well studied. But uh, it's, it's social institutions and structures and forces that allow people to feel in their private lives that it's okay to hit someone, that they are in a romantic relationship. So you might think that the obvious solution to this problem is going to be a social one. If it's a social problem, then the solution should be in the same, uh, the same domain. And to an extent, that's true. Insofar as somebody is in an abusive relationship, there are, and there should be more and better resources, but there are social pathways such as, you know, uh, the police and other uh, uh, legal measures that can be taken when somebody's committing a crime. Mm -hmm. The part that we tried to call attention to in the book is this very unfortunate phenomenon whereby there's also biological consequences within an abusive relationship that are mediated through psychological forces where very often people become more attached to their abusive partner. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is you, you might find a situation where someone is being abused and they know they're being abused and maybe even they know that they ought not to be abused and they should get out of the relationship. But they may find that they have this uncontrollable, visceral feeling of attachment to the very person who's hurting them. And this is unfortunately very common. So we, we constructed a case that may be somewhat stylized where we said, uh, imagine you have somebody who 
has a objective reason to leave a relationship. In other words, it's not a question of whether they should or shouldn't stay. They shouldn't stay. But what they find is that they are so desperately emotionally drawn toward and attached to their partner, and they know that that attachment is making it hard for them to leave the relationship. We said, well, if it were the case that this person could voluntarily, in addition to whatever sociolegal measures might be pursued, take a drug that would sever that feeling of attachment to the abusive partner, at least long enough for them to get out of the relationship and begin to rebuild their life in a more healthy way with the right kind of social supports elsewhere, then we can imagine that that might be a situation where the use of such a drug could be permissible. And the reason why we constructed this case is that there's a long history of people using biological interventions to impede or impair uh, things like people's sexual orientations or um, other expressions of people's uh, sexual interests in others in an, ab- in an abusive or paternalistic way. And so we were trying to say, could you ever use an anti-love drug in a way that wouldn't just collapse into some kind of really questionable paternalistic uh, use? And we thought, well, the structure of that case would be something like the feeling of attachment would be the sort of thing that it's bad to have in this case. Mm-hmm. And the person would know that and have a sort of second order awareness of the fact that this first order emotional attachment was was not good for them. Mm-hmm. And they would voluntarily take the drug to reduce that attachment. Um, but we just try to emphasize over and over in the book that this isn't a drug that is, that is meant to replace the uh, social measures that should be uh, enhanced for helping people get out of abusive relationships. Uh-huh. Um but so are there limits to this? I'm just thinking like, um, you know, I, I, in my twenties, I was in a relationship ended badly. Um, I was, you know, pretty torn up about it. Um, would it be ethical for, for, for me to have taken a drug that said, okay, I'm just going to like erase those feelings that I feel, you know, for this woman. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, this is another just deeply challenging question, and it's one that we dwell on in the book. And yeah. people have different attitudes about this. So uh, the the conservative view about the value of suffering is that almost almost unbearable suffering is the sort of thing that they think we ought to be very slow to try to eliminate from our lives because they think it's the sort of thing that can help us build our character or find meaning mm-hmm. or value in existence. And that if all we had was happy experiences all the time, it would be something like, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which is a dystopia. It's, it's, it's not yeah. actually a utopia to be taking soma pills and just be happy all the time because the whole point of that book is that yeah. you, you don't have a sense of meaning and you're disconnected to, to what's true. And so a sort of dogmatic conservative view would say you should never take a drug to try to reduce the suffering that you feel as a result of a, a, a traumatic relationship. And moreover, they might say uh, the pain and the grief that you feel is partly instructive to you so that before you get right into another bad relationship, you'll have very strong reason to reflect on what happened and, and uh, potentially uh, learn from that and avoid getting into a similarly bad situation. So that's, that's where one center of gravity is in this debate. And you, and you call that the bioconservative view, correct? Yeah, that, that, that's, I think that could be fairly described as a bioconservative view. And that's, that, that's sort of, sort of what's, what feels bad in the moment in the long run is going to be good for you because it's, it's, it's the, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger sort of philosophy, right? That's one way that some bioconservatives will talk about the value of, of grief or suffering. They'll make an instrumental claim that this, this grief or the suffering is the sort of thing that on balance is likely to help you grow and so forth. 
sometimes it sounds like it's almost an intrinsic claim. They'll say that suffering is part of what it is to be a human. And if we relieve suffering, we're, we're relieving something that's intrinsically valuable, even though it feels bad. Um, so there's different ways that that argument is sometimes supported. On the what's sometimes called the bioliberal side of things, who are just roughly speaking people who tend to be a little bit more permissive or open to the idea of using new technologies to intervene in human experiences. Um, they might respond this way. They would say, well, sure, sometimes suffering can be instrumental. But as we all know from people who experience, for example, a chronic untreatable depression and it disables them from participating in life or um, potentially starting a new relationship, which could itself have all sorts of value for them. There are some cases where suffering is just suffering. And we, we quote my colleague, uh, Eric Perens, who is describing this view where he says, sometimes suffering just crushes human souls. Mm-hmm. And we have to be open to the idea that if we're willing to take other kinds of measures to address what feels like unproductive suffering, where we feel like, you know, I've just been in despair for years and I'm not even open to, to a new relationship because I'm so uh, downtrodden over what happened before. At some point, if we respect people's decisions about their own lives, we might think that a person could say, I've suffered enough. And there are non-technologically mediated ways of dealing with suffering. You know, you try to get over your partner in all sorts of ways that people have written about forever. You know, you can, you know, try dating other people or you delete uh, all the messages from your old partner or you go to therapy or whatever it is. And we're always talking about drugs in this book as something that's not meant to replace those measures, but to potentially enhance them or serve as adjuncts to them. Uh So imagine, for example, that you are going to talk therapy to work through your feelings about this bad relationship. And you're saying, I've suffered enough. I've suffered enough. Well, your therapist or if it's a psychiatrist, they might prescribe you a drug that's meant to help or facilitate the effects of the therapy so that instead of being completely disabled by the depression, you actually are able to get to a place where you're able to more productively deal with those emotions rather than simply be uh, uh, crippled by them. And Uh so either side can be dogmatic. You know, the, the, the progressives could say, well, you know, any individual should just decide when they suffered enough and here's a range of drugs they could take to relieve the suffering and let's not analyze that too much more. Usually that's a, that's a kind of a straw character of, of the progressive view. Few progressives are that, are that simplistic about it. Yeah. You, can also, you can also be dogmatically conservative where you say, you know, never should we ever intervene in the biological substrates of any human experience, uh, even if the person really thinks that the suffering is no longer serving a good purpose in their life. That would be dogmatic too. So we try to carve out a space in the middle where we can say we should mm-hmm. certainly be aware of the potential use or maybe even the intrinsic value of certain kinds of suffering in certain contexts, but we shouldn't be dogmatic about it. And we should be open to the possibility that some drugs used in some ways and in some contexts could be necessary for helping a person uh, uh, extricate themselves from from unbearable and unproductive suffering and thereby yeah. potentially uh, increase their genuine flourishing in life. Right. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that that makes sense to me. Um, I think that, I think you're, I think I would agree with that position, uh, in particular, um, for the record, I did end up taking some kind of opiate, op- opioid, uh, based, uh, pain reliever because I, I literally felt like I was in physical pain. And, and so the doctor prescribed yep. that to me, did not help in the long term. Of course, once the drug wore off then I, you know, was upset, yep. um, still felt very upset, but. But I can imagine that would be a, a, you know, a big help to a lot of people. Um, now, would MDMA be useful for that sort of thing? Um, getting over a bad relationship. It's it's hard to say. I, I 
there, there is a lot of interesting anecdotal research from the 1980s when MDMA was used as an adjunct to therapy and to couples therapy before it became prohibited in a kind of ham-fisted, politically reactionary way uh, and, and was listed as a Schedule One substance, which is supposed to be reserved for substances with no therapeutic value. Yeah. And when that happened, those therapists who were using MDMA as an adjunct to therapy were very upset about this and went to the drug enforcement agency and said, you've got to be kidding uh, us. There's no evidence that this drug is, is harmful unless it's being used in a recreational way in a club with, you know, mixing it with other drugs and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it is extremely helpful with massive therapeutic benefit for people if used in the right way. The problem is that we, we don't have a whole lot of evidence that's more contemporary, that's been done in a systematic way to identify exactly those kinds of cases that are most likely to benefit from MDMA-assisted therapy. And so just to be clear, what we argue for in the book is not that people should go try MDMA, but that we should conduct this systematic research into yeah. the interpersonal effects of these powerful drugs that are in any event being tested for individual level symptoms like with, with PTSD. Yeah. And so, you know, could it be helpful for that? Sure. The anecdotes and case studies and stories and what we understand about the effects of the drug and how it can put you into a state of mind and so forth suggests that for some people it might be the sort of thing where they could find that helpful in recovering yeah. from the trauma of a of a uh, of, uh, an ended relationship in the same way that people who are now using it in the context of clinical trials for post-traumatic stress disorder are finding that it allows them to deal with the trauma of their experience in war. Yeah. And so, you know, relationships themselves can be traumatizing and yeah. breakups can be traumatizing, not in some kind of metaphorical way, but just as traumatizing yeah. to our basic mental uh, health as, as the more um, stereotypical cases that you're used to in the literature. So insofar as a broken heart, can be just as debilitating as the trauma that one gets from uh, being in a war zone, then you might think that if this use of the drug is very helpful in the one case, so too might, be, might it be helpful in the other. So um, in the case of MDMA, I mean, the, the basic idea is that you're, um, you're able to approach, I guess from a psychological standpoint, you're able to approach uh, scary feelings or bad feelings in a way that you're a bit detached from them, attached from them, right? And then you can you can work through those with a, a, a psychiatrist or psychologist. Is that basically how it works? That's the prevailing view right now about yeah. why there seems to be such radically good treatment effects for PTSD compared to essentially every other treatment that's been tried. Is that yeah. and you can just read the accounts of people who've gone through this therapy. You don't have to reduce it to statistics or whatever's in the in the latest scientific yeah. journal. You can just ask people who have been on every treatment and tried everything and have contemplated suicide and so forth. And then they have two or three treatment sessions with MDMA and they go off all of their pills and uh, feel genuinely transformatively different. When, when they describe what it was like to go through the therapy, that's exactly what they say. They say mm -hmm. these very thoughts and traumas and scary feelings and horrible memories and so forth that whenever they were uh, elicited or touched on before would cause me to completely freak out under the influence of this drug, I felt safe enough to, within that therapeutic setting, uh, on, you know, in a temporary way, approach those very scary things and kind of look them in the face in a, in a less traumatized way and say, what are we going to do with you? And how are we yeah. going to get through this? And, and, and they find that, that that enabled them to do that. Yeah. Another scenario that, that you mentioned in the book, which I thought was really interesting, was the case where... Um, when, when we're talking about, you know, um, conver conversion therapy 
and such. Where again, bringing it back to the biopsychosocial thing, there's this tension between, you know, biology, psychology, and um, so, uh, you know, sociocultural factors. So, um, you know, there's definitely more acceptance of, um, you know, L- LGBTQ. Uh, people now than there used to be but in that's true in the west in you know sort of Mm -hmm. that's kind of the bleeding edge of culture but there's other cultures where there's where that's not the case in the middle east for example um and so you know there's ethical questions around somebody taking a drug that would say you know change their sexual orientation to match their culture um and you explore that in the book and i and i thought that was really interesting um, and sort of the ethical pitfalls there. Um, could you just could you just address that a little bit? And um... <laughs> I basically try to write about as many extremely controversial things in this book <laughs> as possible. And you know, we've we've tried to deal with them as 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 sensitively and, and carefully as we can. But this is certainly one where um, it's just a very difficult question. So one thing to say is that as far as we know, there is not any existing technology that can completely reorient someone's sexual interests from to simplify same-sex sexual attraction to opposite-sex sexual attraction. But there are currently uh, fundamentalist religious groups, for example, Orthodox Jews in Israel, who have set up this arrangement whereby yeshiva students who have same-sex sexual attraction or even the desire to masturbate, which is seen as problematic in this highly conservative uh, religious society, find themselves in this very difficult position, which is that they are suffering from very severe depression because their, as it were, naturally occurring desires are totally incompatible with the norms and also the theological commitments Mm -hmm. of their group. And so what a a good progressive would say is, well, obviously the correct solution here is to just liberalize those norms and, you know, let's down with religion or something like that. And sure, I mean, maybe I'm not a religious person myself. I was raised in a very conservative religious world and I see the, the dangers and the pitfalls of that. But I also know a lot of religious people who are sincerely theologically committed to certain principles that I don't find intuitive or compelling, but they might genuinely think that their relationship with God will be better if they could get rid of these sexual feelings. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I think a, I think a positive development would be if people could integrate their religious commitments with an acceptance of their uh, same-sex sexual desires. That, that should be the goal. My view is there's nothing at all wrong with having same-sex sexual desires. But what do you say to the person who's an adult who has had time and reflection and so forth and was certainly raised in a, a, we might think of it as as an oppressive society, who sincerely believes that their relationship with God would be improved if they could only, as it were, get rid of of this this one problem? Well, what's happening now in this this, uh, Orthodox Jewish group that I mentioned is that the rabbis and the marriage, uh, the the psychotherapists uh, are getting together and the counselors are prescribing SSRIs, which are usually used for antidepressant purposes, uh-huh. to these yeshiva students. And this has this very interesting quality to it, which is that a side effect of SSRIs for many people is a, is a decrease in libido. So if you didn't want to analyze this case too carefully, you could say, well, they're just, they're just treating depression just as they should be allowed to do. These kids really are depressed, and it's too bad that that depression is clearly at least largely due to a mismatch between their desires and their culture. And maybe we think the culture should change. But again, I don't know how anybody's going to cause that to happen overnight. Uh, so, okay, they should be treated for their depression and antidepressant medication. SSRIs is one way to do that, to allow them to function in their society. Right. Um, 
if that has the side effect of also depressing their libido, which actually seems to be kind of the point in these in in these particular contexts, where the the people who are prescribing the drugs know full well that partly what this might do is depress the sexual desire of uh-huh. the yeshiva students. So it has this kind of dub, double pronged effect. It's kind of a chemical okay, so chemical we- castration, if you will. Yeah. In, in a way, that's yeah. the idea is that if you ha- if you want to masturbate and that's not seen as good in your community, well, we have a way to make it so that you don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. So this is this is the difficulty that if you just assume progressive secular premises, then it seems obvious that the way to respond to this case is not to be you know administering a drug to the student to uh, suppress their libido, but rather to, you know, extricate them from their religious community. But the problem is that we can't just assume that our interlocutor is a is a secular progressive person like uh like we might be mm-hmm. uh, our interlocutor might be somebody who is sincerely committed to a religious worldview and and so that project is a much bigger project than the question right. of what is the ethics of this particular drug use that's like what is the conversation in society happening between the forces of secularism and the forces of religion or the insights of conservatism and the insights of progressivism yeah. and you know what do you say to somebody who is philosophically or theologically committed to a certain worldview that you find abhorrent, but that they have every right as an autonomous adult to, to believe in. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I think sometimes when people have a critique of the culture where they don't like, for example, certain religious beliefs or certain uh, uh, cultural norms, they try to wage that war uh, on the level of what specific thing is ethical with respect to who should be able to prescribe what drug in what situation. And I think in a way that's a bit of a red herring. It's not actually clear to me what to do in this case because the students are depressed. Uh-huh. Uh, it might be that they should just leave their religious community. But again, that's very easy for somebody to say in a flippant way. Uh, for somebody for whom their religious beliefs is deeply interwoven into their sense of self and their whole sense of how they are situated within the universe – it's not simple to leave your religious community. That's where all your friends are and your family is and everybody that you love and care about. And maybe you yourself endorse these values, at least at the, the level of your own conscious reflection. And so um, maybe that's the right answer. But it's certainly not a cost-free solution to, to leave your home and your family and your religious beliefs and everything else. A lot of people have done that to avoid persecution and, and mistreatment on the basis of their sexual orientation. Yeah. Um, but uh, in this case... You know, at least we have to grapple with the fact that the possibility of administering drugs, which can depress somebody's libido and treat their depression at the same time, it creates a, uh, a dilemma where you're helping the individual in the here and now. But by doing that, you're actually reinforcing the very oppressive structure that is creating the problem in the first place. So that's a very difficult case. And we just talk yeah. about the different ways you might think through it. Um, but I don't have any easy answers. Well, and, and, and I think you bring up in the book that um, it also kind of it kind of hides the fact that these people exist that say have same sex attraction. So, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of not going to have the same sort of political will to change things on a social level, right? Because those people have kind of disappeared due to changing their biology. Yeah. So, so if, if some sort of high tech, conversion therapy is invented in the future, which makes it so that people can effectively reorient their, their sexual attractions. Um, a, a major, a major risk of that is that seemingly beneficently minded people who want to help, you know, these poor people in their community who have these aberrant desires, if, if they were able to, to, to use these technologies and actually, uh, make it so that the person could safely and effectively reorient their desire, which, which does not seem to be possible currently, but it could be possible in the future. 
Well, then, exactly. You sort of you, you deflate the whole a queer movement that's oriented around trying to gain greater acceptance for people right. who have all different kinds of sexual desires. So there's this very strong normalizing pressure of, of people who have a view of what's appropriate and want to enforce it on anybody who doesn't fit the mold. Uh, one one thing I study in my own research, uh, uh, apart from this book, are um, children with intersex genital characteristics uh-huh. who are neither stereotypically male nor female. Now, it's a relatively small percentage of the population, but there's you know millions and millions of births every year. So there are thousands and thousands of people who are human beings with genitals that are neither stereotypically male nor female. But there's this, this desire among societies that want things to be clear to, to basically surgically try to eliminate this group of people. They say, well, we're going to mold your genitals into something that at least looks more stereotypically male or female. And it's precisely in doing that that they are uh, erasing a, an entire group of people rather than thinking, right. gosh, maybe... Maybe sex is more complicated than male or female. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, it has to do with, um, I think you mentioned also in the book, this sort of um, patholo- I don't know if I'm going to say this right. Pathologization. Yeah, so that's a tough yeah. one. Pathologization. Yeah. I did the audio recording of the book and totally mangled that several times and had to keep, <laughs> keep, keep recording the word pathologization. Pathologization. It's so, the, yeah, you're the, not alone. The pathologization or medicalization of of certain characteristics, whether that's sexual orientation yep. or, you know, intersex yep. characteristics, and then saying, okay, well, this has to you know, if it falls outside this, this boundary of what's normal, then that, that needs to be fixed or, or, you know, uh, treated in some way. Um, you know, and we've kind of moved beyond that with, um, you know, sexual orientation. Uh, but as you say, in some societies, but again, this creates a huge problem because there are a lot of cultures that are just extremely homophobic and where, uh, gay people and other sexual orientation minorities are routinely subjected to violence and, and, yeah. murder yeah so this is this is a real global problem yeah but would you say that uh you know you're the the sort of you say that your your central message is that you're sort of divide you're you're sort of saying well we don't have to choose here we can we can we can solve people's short-term suffering in the situation that they find themselves in right now but we should also be working towards you know a society that's more inclusive, more just, more, um, you know, tolerant. I mean, is that, is that kind of the central idea here? It would be nice if people could have their cake and eat it too. And there's some work in the feminist literature that points to this kind of solution to these kinds of problems. So we raise the analogy in the book of uh, cosmetic surgery Mm -hmm. that is, you know, it's it's very painful and risky to undergo dramatic surgical changes to your body to conform to what is the prevailing aesthetic norm in your community. And uh, many women, and now increasingly men as well, are finding that it's really hard to contest the norm. It's hard to change the norm and make everybody have a more broad and open sense of what's beautiful. So they're willing to accept the cost of having surgical equipment applied to their bodies to try to conform to the norm. Yeah. And uh, Margaret Olivia Little who has done some really good work on this. Uh, and she's said, well, it may well be the case. She, I think she's focusing on cosmetic surgery for women. So she says it may well be the case that undergoing these surgical procedures will in fact improve the quality of life of many of these women. It will cause them to feel more confident in their own bodies vis-a-vis these questionable norms, but they can't change the norms. They can change their bodies. So she says, you know, the individual 
surgeon and the individual woman who are deciding what to do, the, the doctor's obligation is to their patient and the woman's obligation is to her own flourishing, not to change all of society. Mm -hmm. And so she says it might well be the case that it's permissible to perform the surgery to help this person feel better in their body. But, but at the same time, the doctor or anybody else's party to this, to this situation has an obligation to try to change the culture. And so she says, maybe it's kind of both, you know, the doctor can, you know, ideally should be not profiting from unjust or sexist uh, aesthetic norms. That's not going to happen. I mean, cosmetic surgeons are making bank on preying on people's bodily insecurities. So, sure. you know, it's maybe it's a pipe dream <clears throat> to think that this is really going to happen. But I've, I've, I've made this argument before with respect to so-called virginity uh, restoration surgeries where they supposedly restore the hymen or create a fake hymen in very repressive societies where somebody might be murdered if they don't have um, a visible hymen, which again, the whole ideology is totally messed up. Having a hymen is not a sign of virginity or not a reliable one anyway. Yeah, right. But but if somebody raises the credible threat of violence and says, if you don't perform this simple five minute procedure, I might get beaten up and killed. What do you do as the doctor there? You don't say, well, I don't know, good luck to you. I don't want to reinforce this problematic norms. You might say, well, I, I guess I can perform the procedure, but then you have an obligation now to try to contest those norms. Yeah. And how do you do that? I don't know, maybe you write op-eds yeah. or you donate to women's charities or something like that. It's really hard to know what to do in these situations where you seem to face a choice between helping the individual and reinforcing problematic norms or contesting those norms while at the same time causing individuals to suffer. And and that's a very difficult decision that has many, many domains in which that exists. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a conundrum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I just wanted to bring up we're we've we're going we should probably wrap up. Um, sure. yep. but I just wanted I wanted to float one other thing um by you, which is um sort of the limitations or what the hell do I want to phrase this? Um I think when we're talking about like societal norms or we're talking about you know, uh, genitals that are maybe look different or, or sexual orientation or something from my perspective, from like, you know, an ev evolutionary perspective to me, it seems like some of those things are malleable and some of them are not. So like, for example, if you have genitals that are abnormal, uh, your intersex, like there, there's a lot of evolutionary pressure on you to have genitals that are normal because that leads to normal sexual sexual functioning that then can um, perpetuate your genes and and into the next generation right so i guess what i'm saying is that i think some of those norms are socially constructed but i think some of them also have like deep evolutionary roots that we can't really um well, that, sure, but that, 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 that have, that, they that, have that, pressure, on, have evolutionary pressure on them. Um, well, sure, but then the argument would be that you know um, homosexuality, because it's not uh, conducive to reproduction, is therefore evolutionarily aberrant, and that therefore we should have a moral norm which suggests that we shouldn't be supportive of same-sex relationships. But that doesn't follow. So we, right. because we're these, you know. Uh, conscious creatures that create culture and have all sorts of values that are different from the value of passing on our genes, we get to decide what's good. And it's mm -hmm. true that certain kinds of genital differences might make it hard to engage in penile vaginal intercourse and, you know, a certain kind of in, in becoming impregnated through those means. 
Um, but that's not the only goal of life. Uh, it isn't the fact that the purpose of being a human in terms of our moral values or our teleology or what we might value is just down to passing on our genes to the next generation. Mm -hmm. There's lots of ways of flourishing, meaningful, moral life, uh, including people who don't uh, reproduce. So I think there, we have to be very careful not to conflate what does evolution want us to do with what is good for us to do. And, uh, you know, in the case of somebody with, with uh, you know, intersex genital characteristics, I mean, just take the example of somebody with, with what's sometimes considered on the intersex spectrum. There's a condition called hypospadias, which is where the uh, urethral opening doesn't form at the tip of the penis. It uh. performs, it, it, it opens up somewhere under, on the bottom or more toward the body. So it's, it's hard to, if you want to have sex with someone for the purposes of conceiving a child, it's a little bit hard to do it through unassisted penile vaginal intercourse in this case because the semen, when it's released, won't release in the end of the penis. Right. But there's lots of te technologically assisted ways whereby you can gather the semen and potentially uh, cause sure. conception. Sure. And so in that case, you know, you can still fulfill your evolutionary purpose, but why should that be your purpose? Maybe that isn't your goal in life. <laughs> so as long as we can keep those things apart, yeah. Um, we should we should be okay with people having different bodies and different sexual orientations and different this and that because you know human beings have worth uh, for all sorts of reasons that are, that are not in any way reducible to their their evolutionary fitness. Yeah, yeah, and and um, you know, I'm, I'm I guess what I'm saying is that um, yeah, and I didn't mean to suggest that you know things that are are descriptive are necessarily prescriptive, like like we should yeah. you know. But I do feel like there is a tendency to to feel that way. Like if you if you describe something as as abnormal or atypical, then it's then you're suggesting that oh, this is something that should that that should be excluded or changed or whatever. Um, Definitely, I feel yeah. though that like like um, you know, nature is sort of a cruel mistress. You know, it's 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 back to this idea that like we have these, and it's it's less so because of technology. But we have these ha, had through our history these evolutionary uh, pressures on us uh, that that kind of enforce the uh, you know somewhat binary structures. Um, like for example, we were talking about um, you know. Uh, you know, women wearing makeup, for example, or having cosmetic surgery. I mean, in a way that's um, socially mediated, but it's also those women may be even subconsciously just trying to maximize their reproductive fitness, their potential, right? Um, yeah, I mean, so, so uh, one example that um, Paul Bloom, a uh, uh, psychology professor here at yeah. Yale, has raised in one of his books is... Um, how do you explain people's interest in pornography? That, you know, why, that, you can't have sex with that person on the screen, it doesn't make any sense, but you know, you're going through all these motions, why, why would you do that? It's not conducive to your evolutionary fitness. And his point is just that evolution can help us explain why we have certain characteristics or dispositions in the first place, but how we then use those mm -hmm. capacities is gonna be driven by all sorts of things. And so it doesn't make evolutionary sense to masturbate to a computer screen, but it makes sense from the perspective of, I don't know, subjective hedonic pleasure or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's different reasons why we might do things with the evolutionary features that we have. So my nose didn't evolve to hold up my glasses, but it turns out that it does a pretty good job of it. <laughs> and so, I, I, again, you know, we, can, we have to think about when are we appealing to evolutionary theory to help explain why it is that we've come to have certain traits? And then it's a, it's a largely yeah. different question as to what do we then yeah. want to do with those traits. Yeah, and, and 
I totally agree with this idea of like the naturalistic fallacy that we can we can slip into saying, well, if it's if it's natural, it's good, which ne- yeah, right. necessarily isn't the case. Nature is actually quite cruel, um, yeah, yeah. you know, and and we now have the capabilities to, um, you know, change things and 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 make the world in the way that we want it. But I also feel like we also can't deny the fact that those things that that our history exists, that our our evolutionary history exists, and and is, you know, perpetuating forward through our through our existence yeah. now. So that right, you know, there's kind of a balance there. I think um, definitely. We we talk about it in the book where we say um, if we think that human beings are just infinitely moldable into whatever cultural form somebody proposes, or we can just use technology to intervene in our human nature in, in whatever way we wish, we're yeah. going to find that a lot of problems follow from that because you do have to have some kind of minimal conception of the kinds of creatures that we are. <laughs> and once you have that conception, there's going to be there's going to be certain things that are relatively more or less conducive to our flourishing, generally speaking. So yeah. there are certain social arrangements that just don't make sense for the kinds of species that we are. Just like if you took, you know, uh, squirrels and put them in a bunch of cages, that wouldn't be good for the squirrels because squirrels should be able to run around and climb trees and, and so forth. Maybe they could live in, in the cages, but it's not good for them. And similarly, you know, human beings, because of the kinds of creatures that we are, there's going to be a, a constrained set of possible ways of arranging ourselves in society and a constrained set of norms that we should support that are at least minimally consistent or not inconsistent with our, our mm-hmm. underlying uh, nature. So, so it's both of those things. We, we endorse in the book something we call the principle of default natural ethics, which just means yeah. that for the most part, when we have the choice, we should adopt norms and scripts and social institutions that are consistent with, generally speaking, those aspects of our human nature that don't respond very well to cultural suppression in the sense that it reliably will lead to suffering. Um, but so too should we be able to uh, uh, separate what's natural from what's good. And there are going to be some cases where we should not be taking our marching orders from natural selection and figuring out where that point is, is, yeah. is part of the project of the book. Yeah. I think also though that, you know, we, like we don't, we also don't have perfect knowledge about that. Like we don't have perfect knowledge about, you know, how we evolved yeah. and, and how, how, you know, if we were to base our lives on, um, you know, our, our evolutionary history, we don't have perfect knowledge of that. I mean, the perfect example of that is like the paleo diet, you know, I mean, people are trying to, oh, so trying to bring that up. Yeah. Exactly. You know, trying to base how they eat on, on, on how yeah. we evolved. Well, you know, we evolved in all different parts of the world and, and we've eaten all yeah. kinds of different things through our history. And it depends on where your ancestors came from. So it's like, there's not one, one diet that's going to necessarily work, but, but it's, it's that's, a, that's a great example though, which is that, so it's true that there are certain kinds of foods that are generally speaking better for us or easier for us to digest or more nutritive for us or whatever that is. Um, it doesn't mean that the only foods that we can permissibly eat are ones that, you know, would have been eaten by our ancestors 10,000 years ago in an unmodified form. We can come up with new foods that are consistent with the principles mm-hmm. that explain why certain kinds of things are good for us. But we can also come up with foods that are horrible for us. And we can explain why they're horrible for us by appealing to these evolutionary norms. So it's, it's, this is a very good example because uh, facts about how our bodies came to be through a long process of evolution – can help us identify or explain what kinds of things, I mean, if we get more knowledge in this area, there is a big epistemic problem. Yeah. Uh, what sorts of things are generally speaking going to be conducive to our health and our well-being? But that isn't that isn't the same as the set of things that we could consume that would be good for us because some of those things might not have existed in the evolutionary environment, but we can we can predict which ones of them will probably be 
treated as nutritious mm-hmm. by our body um, by by extending those principles forward, even if those things are unnatural or wouldn't have been found in the evolutionary environment. So that's a very good analogy for the kind of thing that we're talking about in the book. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we could probably go on for like a couple more hours here. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I mean, I appreciate oh, your, your nuanced questions and uh, this has been really really fun to talk with you about. Oh, thanks. Yeah, sorry. I, I'm I'm having a little bit of trouble of articulating some of my questions, but um, and we've kind of jumped all over the place, so I apologize for that, but, but I'm glad you've enjoyed it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, well, thanks so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, where can people find you? Um, I know you're on Twitter because I, I see posts from you like multiple times a day um but but where else can they find you that's probably the best way i mean if people are interested in papers that i've written i try to put every paper that i write in some form or another up on my academia.edu page and on my ResearchGate page so it's not always the final printed version but usually it'll be the accepted version or something like that so i try to make uh all of my writing accessible for free and if people uh, interact with me twitter is a great place uh uh so i'm a at Brian David Earp, I think, uh, on Twitter. Cool. And just one one final question. So, this this book, Love Drugs. What did the publisher plan on this coming out uh, around Valentine's Day, or was that just a happy coincidence? Uh, there, it's probably a combination of both. I mean, there were some <laughs> that I missed, so this can't have been the original plan. But maybe within the range of plans that were possible after I missed the deadlines, they tried to lean it in favor of Valentine's Day. So yeah, it's it's lucky that it's coming out now. Yeah, I think the timing's great. All right, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. Definitely. All right, take care. Well, that's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget, you can support future episodes of this podcast by heading over to sciencecentric.com slash support and making a donation or purchase. The Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro-outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson.